It must have been rather beautiful for the scene of a crime. The provincial park in British Columbia is called Carmana Walbrin. Picture stands of spruce and cedar trees running up hillsides that overlook the Pacific Ocean. A hiker catches a whiff of sawdust, then notices felling wedges protruding from a cedar tree. The tree had been sliced open, ready to harvest. In the right wind, its great mass could topple. Someone had decided they wanted this wood. For the sake of safety, provincial rangers had to come fell the tree, though still the wood was stolen. Someone slipped into the park in the night and absconded with thousands of pounds of wood. More than 10 years have passed, and still, no one has been caught. I'm Boyce Suppelt, and you're listening to Rewild, a podcast of conversations rethinking the human relationship with the more-than-human world. This week, I'm speaking with the writer and oral historian Lindsay Borgen. Lindsay found out about the cedar theft at Carmona Walburn via a press release. It became her portal into a surprising underworld. Tree poaching has swept across North America. Borgen's book about such crimes, Tree Thieves, was just released. She got to know a handful of poachers in Northern California who have stolen burls out of protected redwood forests. Spelled B-U-R-L-S, burls are knobby growths that appear at the base of a tree. A single burl can yield a million pounds of wood, all of it not free. Given the fact that a redwood can live for more than 2,000 years, no one is clear on the ultimate effects of removing the burls. I wonder how someone who lives surrounded by the crushing beauty of a redwood forest can simultaneously love it and kill it, Morgan writes in Tree Thieves, can see themselves as so entwined with the natural world that destroying part of it comes to feel like another stage in its life cycle. Timber poaching, she eventually concludes, is as she puts it, rooted in a challenge that stretches across North America, the disintegration of community in the face of economic and cultural change. Welcome to Rewild. I wanted to start out by, I guess, laying out the problem, um, right? So, like, what is it doing to ecosystems? What is it doing? Right? It has climate effects. What, what is the concern here? I think, like, when we think about poaching on a mass scale, so poaching that you might think about, or illegal logging that you might think about that's happening in South America or Eastern Europe or other places like that, the impact is is huge, right? Because hectares of trees are being taken down in single days and not only are those the kind of lungs of the world being logged but the logging itself contributes to global warming as well through machinery use and transport in north america it's a little bit different because it tends to be one or two trees taken at a time from specific pockets in parks and those pockets are chosen for different reasons usually it's you know someone has found a tree that is a good tree. It can be sold for a pretty good amount of cash, pretty easy to access and get out and that sort of thing. And so it it looks smaller and it is smaller in terms of scale, but because there's so little forest left in North America actually, to take an old growth or to take some of these large trees has a really big impact on the environment itself. The 800 year old cedar in the Carmana Wabrin, the first tree that I had ever heard of being poached, was old growth. You know, it was 800. It had reached that status. And old growth trees are actually more efficient carbon sinks than second growth or even just younger trees. And so old growth is really important in North America for climate change mitigation. We don't have a lot of trees here, but we have really old trees and those those old trees work hard for us, you know. 
And there are also animals, there are species uh, that only live in old growth. That is, for many reasons, it might be due to their height. It might be due to the number of branches in the, in the upper levels, for instance. So they also have a kind of really key presence in the forest ecosystem itself, like the broader kind of operation of a forest. So when those are taken again, a northern spotted owl is losing a place to nest, uh, a marbled murrelet, you know, certain mosses, fungi, all of these things are, they're losing their habitat. They're, they're losing part of their habitat anyway. This is less common in terms of redwoods because redwoods are so massive. It happens, but it's, it's rare for the entire tree to be taken. But for these other trees, when they are logged, the root system is damaged. And so that also leads to a bit of instability in the forest floor. So, you know, canopy to roots, it's affected. And what, I mean, like the one other thing that, that is not in that list, but that I think is one of the interesting tensions in Tree Thieves is also sort of something symbolic may or may not be law. I mean, like I think of there are particular trees down here in Louisiana. Like every year I try and go visit the largest cypress tree that is left and there are Old, there's some live oaks here in New Orleans where if those trees, you know, if someone took a branch off them for some reason, not that that would necessarily make sense, that would really hurt me in this emotional connection way. But I think that gets it to one of the interesting questions in the book. What does it mean to own a tree? I think it's a really interesting question. I'm not even sure if I answered it in the book other than even just questioning it. But humans have been using trees and have been making timber and burning wood and all of the all of the kind of myriad ways that that trees and wood are in our lives since as far back as we know and I start the book talking a little bit about enclosures and the forest system in medieval or kind of middle ages England because there's a lot of timber poaching that happened at that time and it was a response to forests being partitioned off from communities and from common use for hunting and recreation and essentially the aristocracy to use and own as opposed to people that may have grown accustomed to using the tree and having the trees around but in a different way throughout history. So all of the poaching that I talk about in that early chapter, I mean, it, it was, it was wood that was being coppiced or taken down for use, you know, like it starts off with people that have taken firewood to be, to like make bread, brew beer and stuff like that. So it's, you know, I don't know if they would argue that, that they owned the tree, but certainly today that's a sentiment I've heard. There's two cases of burrow poaching in the book that I follow and they happen from Redwoods National Park. And a number of people said to me, you know, if this is public land, and I'm part of the public, that means it's my land. So that is not legally true, <laughs> but the sentiment is used in that way. I want to cut in here to share one interesting fact I learned from tree thieves. The word forest did not originally refer to a stand of trees. It meant a parcel of land that had been appropriated by a king. What historians now call the enclosure movement began as early as the 11th century. Wealthy landowners began to claim the forest as private property and forbid commoners from their traditional harvest activities. Gamekeepers acted as security guards, and if you were caught taking wood from a forest, you might have your hands cut off, or you might be hung. It was illegal, too, to hunt for venison. 
Not that these laws stopped the commoners. Poaching became a form of resistance. The era is remembered today thanks to one particular gamekeeper, the Sheriff of Nottingham, and his poacher nemesis, Robin Hood. Let's talk about sort of that early enclosure movement for a minute. I mean, I guess one of the things that struck me there was the way... Was I right that, that like, Robin Hood was essentially an outgrowth? Oh, it seems yeah. Like, yeah, like, that moment kind of... There's a positivity to poaching that yeah. has changed through the eras and as, you know... But also has not changed, right? So he has since very unfortunately passed away, but there is a poaching expert named Rory Young, and he wrote this uh, kind of amazing handbook on anti-poaching measures, and he says in the handbook, the way that the sheriff of Nottingham failed against Robin Hood is that Robin Hood had the community on his side, right? And, I mean, that's folklore. That's, you know, Robin Hood was breaking the law. Robin Hood technically was doing something bad, but he was doing it for, for kind of sentimental and also kind of very needed reasons and that is something that when I was interviewing poachers I was hearing the same sentiment right right so especially in some of these small towns there is a a certain acceptance a little bit around the fact that this happens and who does it and why and the community aspect of that comes first yeah so it sounds quite shocking because I mean no crimes are pretty but it you know it's it's a very upsetting crime to a lot of people because we feel an emotional attachment, particularly to old growth, particularly to redwoods. But for community, those trees mean a lot more than just standing, right. you know? And to me, the, the Robin Hood connection is more like, we, I grew up, I think probably you did too, and a lot of people of our age, watching a Disney movie, uh, right? It's like, it reminds me of, yeah, it helps me conceive of of this from the poacher's end of, and it just complicates what's going on here. Like, yeah, yeah. I, you know, yeah. I continue to believe that Robin Hood is probably doing a good thing and that allows me to look at modern day poaching and be like, this is more complicated than simply someone is taking a tree off public land and, and harming it... me or the public, right? Yeah. Well, before we get to that and like what some of those complications, I would just love briefly, I mean, like from Sherwood Forest to the U.S., you had a great brief history in the book, so I'd love to hear just a little yeah, bit like how, I... how this morphs and changes through the centuries and as it arrives here in the United States? First of all, I'll say I'm very indebted to the historian Carl Jacobi for a lot of that. He's he's done really interesting work on poaching and the conservation movement and squatting and yeah. really interesting stuff. Is there a particular book that people should check out? That Yeah, it's called uh, Crimes Against Nature, Squatters, Poachers, Thieves, and the Hidden History of American Conservation. So what what we can kind of learn from from his wonderful work and through kind of all of these other sources as well is that as the expansion into the West was happening and you had a kind of burgeoning loggers identity coming about because of that, because loggers were a big part of, of the kind of manifest destiny, you know, um, motivation i guess like there was a lot of imagery around them there's a lot of kind of like identity building through corporations and businesses and, and stuff like that you know like they really knew that they could drive home that like you're a logger you're you're out in the environment every day you do dangerous work all of this so that that was happening and in conjunction with that you also had 
a burgeoning conservation movement. So often people would come from cities and, you know, they, they started to see rural areas as a place of kind of quiet contemplation and a place where you might go to heal your ills or you know if you're if you spend too much time in pollution for instance you know going into the great outdoors can really help you in that way and so through that you've got you've got two already kind of factions that are forming against each other because a lot of the tone around that early conservation movement was just a little bit condescending you know to rural areas to the people that lived there to the people that worked there and increasingly a lot of the kind of a lot of the wealthy folk from cities were building estates in rural areas they were they were building hunting retreats very similarly to the way that was happening in england even just a couple hundred years beforehand and they were enclosing some of that land and in some cases you know kicking people out of their homes and saying i've purchased this land it's mine now you can no longer use this road you can no longer use this river to fish from anymore there are many examples of that kind of taking away of access right that's a a repeat of sherwood forest but now with this like aura of well i'm doing this because the the forest is such a spiritual beautiful healthful place rather than and and healing and also a marker of like masculinity and like rugged american what am i thinking of like like ethos or or imagery you know and so that was all kind of playing and rolling up together and there was a backlash so around that time there are examples of of people going onto private property and taking trees taking timber hunting off private property i I know that there's an interview uh with a conservation officer at that time they would have been called who said you know it's it's too dangerous to be out there you know because they're gonna shoot at us basically (laughs) there there's another great uh source or another great interview with another conservation officer that says you know unless you have the community turn against the poacher you'll never catch him and so that is a line that goes from Sherwood Forest to East Coast America and, you know, kind of mid-19th century to 21st century California, you yeah. know. It's that, that kind of community link is is very strong. And let's talk about 21st century California now. So you focused a lot on Oric, California. Talk a little bit about what the town looks like. Yeah, so Oric is, is a really small town. It's right on the southern edge of Redwoods National and State Park. It's along Highway 101. I think in that region, they call it the Redwood Highway. And it used to be a mill town. So there were there were mills around it. And everyone who lived in that town either worked for the mills, worked in logging, or provided services to people that worked in logging or, or worked in the mills. And in 1968, the Forest Service land and the state land that had been kind of providing that timber was transferred over into national parkland. And in 1978, that park was then expanded. And since then, Oric has not particularly thrived in the shadow of the national park. I think part of that is that the road, like the the town is built around the highway. So you've got most of your businesses on either east or west side of the of the highway before you get into the park. It's it's simple to drive through. Right. 
if you don't have a reason to stop, you might not. Right. You know, and so like you don't even you barely have to slow down. You can just kind of barrel through. There's no checkpoint or anything to like pay for your ticket. And so Oreg has struggled in that transition for sure. And it continues to struggle. I mean, you got fairly close to these poachers. What was it like to develop relationships with the people that were perpetrating this quote unquote Mm. crime? You know, I think there's a little bit of a misconception around what it's like to ask people for interviews and stuff like that. And, you know, a lot of people have said, like, how did you get them? to talk to you and like I really disagree with that perspective I didn't get them to I just asked (laughs) right it's that it's that simple you know um no no devious plan to no like I don't want to see that I wanted you know once we started talking I have a very kind of slow interview style which I think actually fit into the culture a little bit I wasn't uh I wasn't there to get two quotes and leave kind of thing so yeah I showed up and I just started kind of going into places and you know once you do the first one and ask who else you should talk to it was just rolling pretty much and there's this I always like I wish I had taken a bit more time with this in the book but in the end it all worked out fine but there's this amazing gas station slash grocery store slash picnic spot slash whatever (laughs) there called the shoreline deli and it's just kind of a hub of of town activity because people stop there they fill up they get water they you know they do all the stuff and i just kind of hung out at the shoreline yep a lot did anything surprise you as you got to know the people in Oric? i'm always surprised that people are just so generous and i maybe that just shows a bit of cynicism on my end but people were just really nice to talk to i had a lot of ideas fomenting in my mind at the time so i'd say like well this is this is how I'm seeing this in context, you know, so it's not, I really didn't want to approach it too much like a true crime story, even though this is technically a crime. I, I wanted to approach it as like, here's a shocking thing that happens. And then here's how it all unravels into why, you know? And I think that that why part was in a sense, maybe surprising to other people. And so it led to some really interesting conversations. Let me cut in again to share a little bit of environmental history. The most powerful U.S. laws that protect non-human nature, like the Endangered Species Act and the Wilderness Act, were all passed in a brief window in the 1960s and the 1970s. This was the era, too, when the Redwood National Forest was founded and then expanded. This meant more mills shuttered and orcs slumped deeper into economic depression. A group of loggers felt like their needs were being ignored, and they wanted to confront President Jimmy Carter, who oversaw the park's expansion. He was famous for his former life as a peanut farmer. I'll let Lindsay pick it up from here. There was an organized convoy leaving from Oric and driving all the way across the country. And they were going to haul, and they did haul, a large chunk of redwood that had been carved into the shape of peanut. And the burl was on the back of the trailer that was being hauled by a semi-truck. And it had a big poster on it that said, it may be peanuts to you, but it's our lives or what have you. And so this peanut made its way across the country. There were kind of a large group of people in trucks going with it, stopping along the way, doing press advance kind of quotes and stories and stuff. And it made it to Washington and uh, it was not left there. So the president did not meet the 
convoy and his representatives that he sent out, you know, said that this is not an appropriate gift and we shall decline. And so back home it goes, you know, people are quite angry and the peanut lives today outside the shoreline, Delhi, um, slowly kind of absorbing many years of water and rain and it's stuff yeah, like that. Decaying it's still bit, there. But yeah. It's interesting to me that, that, I don't know, there's something about Oryk being the entrance to this, so one of the most famous landscapes, which is itself, yeah. it's like one sort of museum of a landscape and then at the foot of it, this sort of, yeah, totem to uh, resistance to that. Yeah, wish I wish more people would stop at the shoreline, I guess, to absorb that story and reflect on it. Yeah, I mean, it does, you know, it's the inside and I don't know, uh, like, uh, Kind of my caveat is that I have not been to the shoreline since COVID. And so I know that it was recently like Betty retired and it was sold. So I'm not sure. But when I was there, the inside had, you know, kind of photos from that time and all of the memorabilia calendars and things like that that was made in the aftermath. Right. So, so this is an impromptu museum to this underknown piece of history. Yeah. And there's a, a line from the book that I jotted down here. I mean, in terms of, of sort of your... your alluding to this element of why these crimes happen. And I really liked this as a summary, so I will read it and then let you talk more about it. He said, I've begun to see the act of timber poaching as not simply a dramatic environmental crime, but something deeper, an act to reclaim one's place in a rapidly changing world, a deed of necessity. Talk a little bit about, about what you mean by that. In the book, I, I met three poachers. I, I talk about more, but I, but I spent time with three poachers and two thirds of them came from logging families. They not only were they logging families, they were like, you know, from the early days of America, logging families, you know, like they, they didn't have their roots forever in California, but they had come to California from North Carolina after logging in North Carolina and kind of died out. So like this was a really important part of their family history. It was their family work. And when anti-logging protests and kind of clear-cut logging protests were happening a lot of anger bubbled up that i think and that i've observed was really related to the fact that logging was not their work it was their identity it was how particularly the men in their family had provided for their families like it it was something that had been discussed and taught from a very young age trickled down and there were not a lot of discussions around doing much else, you know? And so when that slowly and then kind of all at once actually stopped, that led to a kind of disconnect, especially in this one generation of men from what had connected them or what was meant to connect them to the people before them. And also, you know, the space that logging held even in the community was very notable and so it was the work that that kept it going it was that region's reason for being and it was what people did and it was what they learned and so when it ended there you know you've got kind of a shattering of of connection to your family to your community to your just ability to make a living and eat and pay your rent and both chris guffey who is a poacher who I interview and Terry Cook and also Danny Garcia, you know, they have all 
kind of placed the moment of that shatter to the park itself, to the to the expansion of the park, and then even going back a decade to the the kind of uh, instation of the park. And whether or not that's like actually the moment that that happened, it it almost doesn't matter, you know. That is the 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 kind of memory in their mind of when things really turned and when their fortunes changed. And so particularly for Terry Cook and for Chris Guffey, poaching is a way to earn money, but it's also a way to make a statement against the park. Both of them were very open with me about, I I do this because I know how to do it. I know how to identify a burrow or, or what have you, even a log that's worth taking. I know where to take it. I know how to chop it up. I know what it's worth. And also I really hate the park. And so that's how I kind of, you know, really started to see, see that crime. That's the context that I came to see it in is it's of course the payoff is financial and immediate and, you know, relatively easy to achieve, but it's also saying something. It's a statement. And that statement is that, you know, you can't really take this away from me. It's who I am. Do you have a, I mean, like, you know, you've spent, after spending this time in this community, building relationships with these people, I wonder if you've thought about what we do with that, because that strikes me as a problem that's beyond just auric and beyond just logging. I mean, I've been doing some, some like pre-reporting in New Mexico about cows and ranching, right? And they're like, Yo, yeah. cowboy culture in the West is so deeply embedded, but it's something that we may have to get rid of if we want to address the climate crisis. And so, yeah, I, I think traditions are important and like family traditions can be really important and I understand why people want to hold on to them. So how, what's the path forward? Yeah, I mean, so I grew up in ranching country, like rural town, 700 people you know like very small classes all of this kind of stuff and then even within that in the same province in canada the oil and gas industry in the northern parts it's just this it runs everything and it it, it, like there's so many parallels to logging except logging is like 40 years ahead of this flux right for the other industries i think there are some lessons and I don't know, like, a lot of times I I think it might sound really frilly or kind of hippie or whatever to be like, a lot of people do not feel heard. They, they just feel that a decision is going to be made without them and not for them at all. And actually recently there was a town in Canada that, that had a mill. There was an environmental group there that wanted to advocate for being kind of fully sustainable, fully off the grid by 2050. When they started, no one was on board. This was an industry town, you know, like fully everyone was, everyone's dad was employed here. You know, the hockey rink was built by this company, all of this stuff. And they did this thing called deep canvassing, which was like just talking and listening. And sitting down and saying, I respect you. And I just want to hear about your life, you know? And by the end of it, they had more than half the town on board for adopting this resolution to be completely sustainable by 2050. And I know that that sounds really 
like hard to achieve on a huge level and maybe it's just an anomaly of this town but I don't think that that happens a lot in activist circles I don't think that it's I don't think that it's on purpose that it isn't happening but I think it should be happening a lot more you know there are some parts in the book where I talk about the heydays of the timber wars in northern California where you've got people just like strapped to a tree and and companies are going to come take down the tree anyway and endanger this person's life and you've got people living in the treetops and all of this very active boots on the ground activism but there was not a lot of reaching across the divide there and I think that we live with the consequences of that now you know I think that when I am doing interviews and people remember what was said to them in 1992 or whatever that's real and if that's a reason why they still feel resentment toward conservation, then I think we should know that and use that going forward. You know, and I I don't like to blame the activist movement for that at all because it's it all is intertwined and works together. And I, I believe that activism is like deeply important. But I think it could do better. Yeah. Well it makes me think about the the diversity of tactics that are needed. We might need some like more militant activists to probe one end of, of what's possible, but we also need, and in this moment, it feels like we, we need a lot more people that are doing deep canvassing. Yeah, and I'm just going to bring this up to uh, just to give a little promo, but there's a book coming out called Dirt Road Revival. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's I written have, by yeah. Chloe Maxman and Kenyon Woodward, who are rural Democrat representatives and they would tell you the exact same thing like they i went to an event and listened to them talk and you know i think one of them said like i was talking to people that hadn't been approached by anyone on the other end of the spectrum ever even just to talk you know and then and then they're getting votes and i just think i think that we're seeing that that can work i do it's just that it takes so much time and you really, you have to be there for the right reasons too. Like you have to genuinely want to listen and you don't have to agree, but hearing people's experiences in that way, I think is, is key yeah. to all of this. Yeah. That makes sense. We're almost out of time. One question that I think is worth asking is sort of like through the process of all this reporting and writing, has your relationship with nature generally or like with forests specifically changed at all well i live uh i live outside of a provincial park like right on the edge and i actually live also on the border of a community forest so the provincial park is managed by the province it is you know it's it's there for recreation but the community forest is managed as it sounds like by the community right before i moved here the mill cut its hours in half and so my whole perspective of my town has has really been kind of forged in the shadow of the book and then also how that book applies to where where I am now and even though I can be at times very critical of very sentimental reactions to the environment I of course still have those reactions it's impossible 
to go to the redwoods and like not just pull your car over and sit there and feel very emotional yeah wonder's important too right it's like well, i don't yeah. think yeah i don't think we should be losing that sense of wonder no for sure i think it's actually really important to realize that just because someone is a logger doesn't mean that they don't feel that either and and there are some historical sources that that make that argument right that says like a man is a logger because also we're a man or a woman but in the history they are they often see man because they love the woods <laughs> you know and those two things can happen at once so Anyway, I digress, but I think that my emotions are all over the place around this and I go both ways. I think the community forest where I live, like, I think that's will, amazing. Will you explain a little bit about how that works? I mean, you get into it in yeah. the book, but not everyone, I think, will know what that phrase means. Sure. Yeah, so it's managed uh, with the community in mind. All the profits were made in the community. So, for instance, it has contributed to the development of a senior center. They often use the funds that come from logging specific trees on that land so it's not logged in huge swaths it's kind of sustainably logged so that some old growth remains some new growth remains so that in 10 years you've got more trees to come down right and then the profits from that remain in the community itself rather than corporations kind of coffers somewhere else it's not perfect not everyone agrees on how the community forest should be managed I think that's kind of part of the beauty in a way is that if you're not going to agree with it on a national or a provincial scale, you're probably not going to agree on a local one either, but it provides jobs, not as many as a huge male operation might, but still some it provides training. It provides really local level land management, which I think is important. So they do control burns and places where they, they know kind of deeply where it recently hasn't been burned, for instance. And then the funds from selling that timber, wherever it goes, remain in the town and go to sponsor services. Yeah, and it's an interesting, I mean, we started by talking about the enclosure movement historically in Sherwood Forest. And you'd think on the face that like building a national park in a forest is not enclosure, right? Like making a space for everyone. But it is in its own way. And so this is an interesting model of like a different, right? Like undoing enclosure in a different way and letting, yeah, letting a community have a long-term stake in in a space instead of it just being a resource to be run through quickly. Yeah, Yeah, precisely. And I think there's actually a lot of discussion around this in scholarly kind of research circles around like, they, they call it fortress conservation. And a lot of it is used actually at the global south where you might have a large NGO going into a space and say, no lion hunting here or no giraffe hunting or what have you. And you blocked it all off. It's very important for those species, but it also essentially deprived communities all around it of a source of income, the capacity to do it traditionally and right. sustainably and it's an export it's an export of our own mode of conservation that isn't even working so uh, depriving people, i mean you got to this but to me it's like depriving people i mean as you said loggers log because they love the forest right it's depriving people yeah, of some of, of them i'm sure some, some of them yes. log because they're just want a payday for a bit you know there's something to be said for traditional, I mean, there's that, that classic bumper sticker of, are you an environmentalist or do you work for a living, right? But there is something to be said for the relationship one builds with the rest of the non-human world by working in it. And it's just a matter of how do we 
how do we ensure that it's not like the people working in it aren't over exploiting it and, and that there is a some sort of community dialogue in place to to make sure that, that those things are happening at sustainable rates and yeah yeah part of what i feel pretty comfortable saying is that i don't think the corporate approach actually satisfies anyone in that regard because it is often get in cut as much as you can get out often run from board offices that are miles and miles and miles away and so it might just be that the corporate structures that we're using actually ignore both sides of activism and work where they might actually meet you know yeah yeah and it suits them to pit them against each other absolutely that's our show for this week thanks for listening to rewild this podcast was produced by me and peter buckley with original music by r cole furlow 